This is KMTT. Today, on Mondays, we have a shear of Harav Binyamin Tavori, who this year will be examining different responses, Shalotu Tshuvot, from the major ones from the 18th and 19th century. Harav Tavori. Harav Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, perhaps better known as the Nitziv, was born in 1817. His father was a noted businessman who was also a Tamid Chacham. We know very little about the childhood of the Nitziv. Was he indeed a child prodigy? Was he a tremendous masmid? That we have seen in later life. His Hasmada was almost legendary. But we do know that at the age of 13, he married the daughter of Rabbi Yitzhak Valajaner of the Yeshiva Valajan. In 1854, 37, at the age of 37, Rav Berlin, the Nitziv, was appointed Rosh Yeshiva of Valajan. His father-in-law had passed away. His brother-in-law who had temporarily assumed the position of Rosh Hashiva, had also passed away, and the Nitziv took the place of the Rosh Hashiva. In the world of Yeshivas, it's known that there was a big discussion about this appointment. Rav Yosef Dov Halevi Salavechik, the base Halevi, was a contender for the position, and a group of Rabbanim came to Valajin to determine who would be the Rosh Hashiva. Eventually, Rabbi Yitzhak Kohanan, together with others, decided as a psak that the Nitziv would become the Rosh Hashiva. Rabbi Chaim Brisker, Rabbi Chaim Salavechik said Shi'urim in the Yeshiva, but the Nitziv was the Rosh Hashiva. Interestingly enough, eventually they became related through marriage. The Rabbi Chaim married the granddaughter of the Nitziv. For a while they were together in the Yeshiva and Velazhin. The Yeshiva Valajan had an interesting agenda different than other yeshivas. First of all, it was, in a sense, the first organized yeshiva and set a pattern and a tone for all the Litvashi yeshivas. There, the original idea and uh, something that has not been carried on by the place, the yeshivas that I'm familiar with, was that they learned the Talmud Bavli in order. Usually in yeshivas, one year they learn Vavbasrol and then Yidgitin. There's a seder of Masechlis that they learn, usually a seven, eight year cycle. Velazhin's custom was they learn from Brachas until the very end. So it, it, and a certain uh, strange situation would arise. A student who would come to Velazhin, let's say spend three years, might never learn anything to do with Nashim Nazikin, the classic learning of yeshiva, or a person who came to learn Nashim Nazikin would touch nothing but those Mesechtas. They had also a theory in Valashin that somebody would be learning all day and all night. 24 hours a day learning what went on in the yeshiva and it was part of the philosophy of Reb Chaim Valashin or 
through the, the yeshiva that the world exists in the schus of those that learn Torah. We are going to make sure in our yeshiva in Balazhan that the world exists. Somebody will be learning Torah 24 hours a day. The the uh, student makeup of Valajin was not always of people who were what we would call the Lamed Vav Tzadikim. Many of the uh, Bogrim, of the alumni of Valajin, were not what we would call Orthodox Jews. Many Maskilim came to learn Torah in Valajin. That was considered the place to study Yahadut. For example, Chaim uh, Nachman Bialik was a student of Alajan, and he described the Nitziv in some of his poetry the, as a father to his students, as one who showed extreme love for his students. There is a story that I heard that a certain student left Valajan. Now, the Nitziv basically knew that this student was a good student, learned Torah, but he wasn't really religious. And uh, the Nitziv asked him, when he left Valajin, has Valajin influenced you to become more religious? Allegedly, the answer was that he said to the Nitziv, he's going to continue living his lifestyle the same way he lived it prior to his stay in Valajin, but he'll never enjoy it as much. The spirit of Valajin got him enough that he could never enjoy as much leading a life not as a true bentora. The Nitziv, as we'll see in some of the Chuvas, uh, emphasized part of these ideas in the, the literature that we'll discuss in Mirza Hashem. But before we do that, I'd like to just mention that the Nitziv was a great lover of Eretz Yisrael. He was a leader of Chibat Zion. In fact, he wanted to come to live in Eretz Yisrael near the end of his life. As is well known, there was a tremendous battle with the Russian government and the yeshiva Valashin, and eventually Valashin closed its doors. It would not tolerate the Russian influence where they wanted to have as, uh, some secular subjects studying Russian in the yeshiva, and eventually the yeshiva was closed down. At that point, the Nitziv decided he wants to come to live in Eretz Israel. He traveled, he went to Minsk, and then he went to War- Warsaw. Unfortunately, he became ill and passed away before he could realize his dream of coming to Eretz Israel. The Nitziv was a prolific author. He, we have today a whole set of Svarim Merame Sade of the Nitziv on Shas. Perhaps a more classic work is the Nitziv on Sheiltos, the Ravachoy Gaon, the parish of the Nitziv, is one of the most, if not the most important parish on the Nitziv. The Nitziv, the, the Sheiltos with the parish of the Nitziv, Ha'amek Sheila. His Perush and Chumash is also a classic, Chumash Hamik Davar. Apparently, this is based on Shi'urim that he gave in Valashin. Again, something that was not common in many yeshivas, but was common in Valashin, is that the Nitziv learned Chumash daily and explained Chumash to the Talmidim. And from that, apparently, the Sefer Hamik Davar developed. The uh, Chuvas that we'll discuss today are called the Meshiv Davar. Rav Zevin mentioned that. Uh, the Nitziv was such an important figure that Chuvas were sent him from all over. Apparently, we only have part of the Chuvas of the Nitziv. We have what in our in the collection we have what's called four volumes, but they're rather short volumes 
of Chuvas of the of Nitziv. The Nitziv had two sons that were well known. One was Reb Chaim Berlin, and the other was Reb Meir, who changed his name from Berlin to Reb Meir Barilan. He became one of the great leaders of Mizrahi, the founder of the concept of the Encyclopedia Talmudit. The University Barilan was named for him, a great uh, Zionist leader, which was not that far removed from the ideology of the Nitziv. I mentioned before that the Nitziv welcomed the students at the yeshiva, did not always check their credentials. In the tshuva, in the first chilek of Arachayim, of Meshiv Davar, he has a, quite, a, a discussion that he wrote in response to a journal. There was a journal that was called Machzike Hadas. And the editors of that journal had written an article where they discussed the different segments of Jewish population, those that were religious, those that weren't religious, those that were semi-religious, and the, uh, the Nitziv uh, attacked this whole dis- distinction and talked about someone who's not religious is not within the three groups that you're talking about. He wanted to talk about three different other types of groups, but they were all what we would call religious. Some had more Avas Hashem, some had Avas Hashem at all times, some when they were doing mitzvahs, there were some who were just doing uh, mitzvahs without uh, some sort of uh, Avas Hashem. And he went on to discuss this uh, quite at length. But one of the things that the uh, editors had written is that our generation is the worst generation that ever was. This is uh, something that's fairly common in, in literature throughout the ages. And the Nitziv there really tries to refute that argument. He proves that there were times that people worshipped Avodah Zarah, the uh, rampant desecration of the name of God, the Chil Hashem, that was common in those generations, does not exist today. And, and the Nitziv wrote that the editorial board had suggested that we should separate ourselves from these groups totally, from the groups that they considered irreligious. So the Nitziv said, with due respect, this would be like a sword, a dagger in the heart of our holy nation. When we always lived in, when we did live in Eretz Israel, even at the time of the Beis Hamikdash, there was such hatred, sinas chinam, which caused shvichas damim. One person would accuse the other and suspect another, and therefore it came to terrible, terrible things. And now that we're in Galus, don't we understand how much sinas chinam can hurt? Shouldn't we join them? Shouldn't we be, we be together with them? Also, the Nitziv said, and I think this is part of the theology of the Yeshiva Valashin, in this tshuva, in Simon Memdalid, the Nitziv says, we should strengthen Torah in our base medrash, we should try every possible way of bringing more people to learn, and we do not need to be medakdeik, im lishma, lishma, we do not have to learn why and how the person, people learn. We have to bring people even if they learn without Ava, without Dveikus, but still, they're Mekayim Tamotora, they're not 
going to be Mevatel Torah. There, we should welcome these people into our communities. We should develop more Shiurim for Balabatim, which will be the cause of diminishing the Sinas Chinam. Those people should be welcomed in the world of Torah and it would strengthen us all completely. So the Nitziv summarizes and says, if we really want to strengthen the religion, the only way is to learn more Torah, to teach more Torah, to bring more people into the world of learn Torah without concern whether people are learning Lishma, Lalishma, that's something that we don't even know. It's up to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But we should not even think about it. And therefore, more people will learn Torah. And then eventually the people will, will realize that learning Torah is the protection of Am Yisrael. Some of the tshuvas that are perhaps more famous and well-known today include a tshuva in Simon Yud. The question actually was asked about a certain Bet Knesset, a certain shul, that faced Darom in their community. But there was another shul that faced Mizrach. Now, assumedly, you're supposed to face Mizrach. But the Gabayim wanted to reconstruct the Bet Knesset, and they wanted to build the what we would call the Mizrach wall to the Durham. That was the way, the configuration that they could extend the building. And they also had another, first of all, one shul already had it. Secondly, they felt this is the way to extend the shul. Thirdly, outside the shul, toward the Mizrach wall, there was some sort of a, a church that was built. And they felt this way, they'd be turning away from the church. So they asked the Nitziv what to do in such a situation. The Nitziv said that it's obvious that we Paskin, that you're supposed to face Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalayim. And he quoted the Gemara, quotes the Shulchan Aruch. He does quote, there are other opinions about which way should you face. And he also discussed the question when the Aron Kodesh does not face the correct direction, in which face should a person, how should a person daven? Should he daven toward the Aron Kodesh with a, somehow of a side movement to the, to Eretz Yisrael? Or should he move, daven toward Mizrach, toward Eretz Yisrael, with a side movement to the Aron Kodesh? And he quotes a whole controversy about this. Actually, it has become a very relevant question. In many places, the uh, because of the the figuration uh, configuration of the shul, the shul did not face Mizrach. If I remember correctly, in the main base medrash of Yeshiva University, did not face Mizrach. In in Yeshivat Haaretzion, the the Aron Kodesh is a little bit not facing directly Yerushalayim. And you notice if you ever dive in, in Yeshivat Haaretzion, some people face Aron Kodesh, they face straight. Some people turn to the side. Some people turn somewhat in the middle. The Nitziv has a whole discussion about this point. And he said that all this is done when the Aron Kodesh was built in the Dharam. And we have a, therefore we have a problem which way to face. However, Lechatchila, of course we should face the 
Eretz Yisrael we daven, and the Heichal, the Yarn Kodesh, should be in the Mizrach. So he said to, if it happened that they built the Beit Knesset in one way, okay, I'll, the suggestion of which way to daven is the discuss uh, another discussion, but to change the Yarn Kodesh from the Durham to the from the Mizrach to the Durham, he said, is unacceptable. It's not lechatchila; should not be done. The fact that one shul d- did it is irrelevant. If they did something that's incorrect, why should we copy them? As far as the argument that there was a church on the other side of the Mizrach, he said that is also totally ir- irrelevant because it's considered a different a different section at all. It's not at all considered part of the environs. It's considered part of the shul. A building is a building by itself. And interestingly enough, and perhaps typical of the Nitziv, who was so well versed and learned in in the various parts of literature, as I mentioned, the Perush and Chumash, the Perush and Shiltos, here he quotes an interesting idea from Chumash. He said, when Moshe left Paro at Makat Barad, it said, when I leave the city, I'll daven. And Rashi said that he didn't want to daven because it was a city uh, with Avodah Zarah, and therefore he could only daven when he left the city. But then they asked the question, why did it? Why was it that he for Barad he wouldn't daven in the city, but but the other Makos, for example, Tzfadeya and Arov, Moshe never said I have to live the city. So, the Nitziv said, you see, in Mitzrayim there was a shul, there was a Bet Knesset, because we said Lo There was always a base Medrash. Therefore, Moshe could daven in the base Medrash. He didn't have to care that there was Avodah Zarah outside the base Medrash. But when he wanted to daven, here he wanted to daven outside. The we were talking about stopping something that's a, 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 like rain that's coming from the sky, and Moshe did not want to daven outside in a place where there's Avodah Zarah. But inside would be permissible if you're in the shul, even if something's outside. Therefore, he said, no consideration should be taken into account here, but you should keep the Aron Kodesh in Mizrach. As I said before, this tshuva is important because many places, when they build it, a Beit Knesset should take this into account. But also, the question is, if the Beit Knesset is not built in the proper way, what should be the proper attitude toward Davening, facing one way, facing another. Some people will remember that Rav Meidan in wrote an article about this a number of years ago, pr- probably because of the situation in Yeshivat Haritzion. Another question that is very well discussed in modern times as well was a tshuva that was written from by the Nitziv to his son. And it was interesting because it was based on a family custom when his son had visited his grandfather, that's Rabbi Yosek Valajner, the father-in-law of the Nitziv, some people had come, had come late on Shabbos to a meal, and apparently they had no more Lechem Mishnah. They did not have two whole loaves of bread. So the custom there was they gave him two pieces, like if we would have a sliced rye. You buy in a package of sliced rye or a, from the bakery, sliced, can you bring two prusot and be Lechem Mishnah? And that's what they did. And they said, that's not considered Lechem Mishnah. And my proof is that the night of Pesach, 
we have three matzahs. Why do we have three matzahs? Because there's a minig to break one of the matzahs. And that's called lechem oni. Lechem oni, in this respect, means bread that poor people use. Poor people buy pieces of bread, broken bread. So, but the Nitziv said, besides, the, the, the Rush said, besides those, the broken one, you have to have two others. So you obviously see that you have to have shleimos, and therefore the prusos, the broken pieces, don't count. The Nitziv said there's no proof from the, from the, from the Rush. Because, first of all, we showed him disagree with the Rush. You want to have a whole loaf of bread. True. If a person has one loaf of bread, should he break it into two and be Yotze with two prosos? Or no? Should we say that a shalim is better? Obviously a shalim is important. So the rush just mentioned that a person should have two shleimos. But it doesn't mean that you couldn't use Lechem Mishnah for a prusa. If you have a shleima, why not use the shleima? So he said, first of all, there are Rishonim that disagree with the rush. And they believe that if you only that you do not need three matzahs night of Pesach, you only need two matzahs. You break one and you have Lechem Mishnah. You can see from here that broken piece of bread, uh, just a prusa, is also considered lechem mishnah. Moreover, the Nitziv says, even according to the Rush, okay, lechatchil, you should have three. But what happens if you only have two matzahs? Wouldn't the Rush also say to break it? And if you would break it, then you'd only have a prusa? So he thought that for your, for sure, you're yotze with a prusa. He also says an interesting svara. He said, perhaps the distinction would be how the bread came to the table. If you brought a, a whole loaf of bread to, you, to the table, then if you break it into pieces, that's not considered Lechem Mishnah. But if you would originally bring two pieces of bread, two prusos, then maybe that would be considered Lechem Mishnah. The idea is not to break it into two in front of you, but to have it broken. He said, perhaps that's the reason the Minig of at the Seder is we break the matzah way before we eat it. So he said, in such a case, maybe that's considered Lechem Mishnah. One could argue that the night of Pesach, do we really need Lechem Mishnah? Maybe because of Lechem Oni, the argument would be that a broken piece of bread is Lechem Mishnah or only on the night of Pesach. I don't think the Nitziv took that argument seriously at all. Therefore, the Nitziv felt that as long as you have two pieces coming to the table, it would be satisfactory. He didn't say that it wouldn't be a good idea to have Shlemos, but nevertheless, he said Lechem Mishnah could be considered Prusos. Today, again, especially in places where there's a large group of people and not everybody gets to the table in time to make hamotzi with the balabas or with the yeshiva, be that in whatever case it might be, this question would always be a question. Can you have two prusos to be yotze lechem mishnah? And the Ritziv says that you could be yotze with prusos. Prusos. One of the questions that was asked to the Ritziv that's also extremely relevant, 
is was a question whether a rabbi could be Masada Kedushin for a couple that you know in advance will not keep Taras HaMishpacha. They will definitely be over Dinim of Nida. Now, inasmuch as they could obviously get married without this rabbi, so that would be considered Trey Abra Dinara, in which case there would be no Isra Daraisa of Lifnever. Uh, just to explain briefly, let's say um, a Nazir wants to drink wine. If I enable him to get the wine, then I'm over Lifnever. I've helped him do the Avera. But if he could get the wine anyway, he doesn't need me to get the wine. He could get wine, but I'd bring him a different wine. So that's called like two sides of the river, one side of the river. If it's all on the same side, he could, he could do it. So he could do it himself. It's not considered lefnever. Nevertheless, there is a problem of of Messiah, you do Avera. It's true, I didn't cause him to do the Avera, so I'm not over Lifnever, but I am helping a person do an Avera. By helping him, get, by getting married, so I'm actually helping him do the Avera. The question, of course, would exist what would they do if they didn't get married? Would you say that the situation would become better? The Nitziv has a different argument. The Nitziv's argument was based on a, a very interesting svara that he found a distinction between a case where I actually give them the... they do the Avera at the time that I'm there, or at they do the Avera at a later time. He mentions this svara in the name of I, I I lost the name of the person from whom he quoted for a moment, but the svara that he said since the Avera is not being done now, now they're being married kados v'chadin. You made sure that they went to, that she went to mikveh for the chasana. Therefore. The Avera will be done later. That's not even considered Messiah over Avera. So he, he argued that point and said perhaps we could be Matir. However, he quotes opinions that would seem to say even in such a case it would be Usr. And he quotes a discussion, a whole discussion that we won't go into of Rashi, the Ran, others. But then he said that in a case where you do it because of need, not to do them a favor, as it were, but let's say it's your job. Let's say it's your panasa. So he said in such a case, it would be mutter according to all opinions. And therefore he said, according to my, the first opinion of many Rishonim that I quoted before, uh, the Rosh, the Tosfas, you can uh, perform this wedding because... They're not doing an Avera at the time, and it's not Lifna uh, Iver. According to the Bishama, it would disagree with this principle as long as it's your job or you get paid for it. So then you'd be permitted to do it. 
So therefore, for example, in Israel, the Rav of the community, the Rav of the city, the, Rab, the Rabbanim who are active in uh, communal life, who that's part of their responsibility, the Masadir Kedushin, do not have to worry about being a Sadeh Kedushin for a couple that might not keep Taras HaMishpach in the future. In a, uh, as I said, um, unfortunately, this is a Shaila that comes up very, very often. And the, the Tshuva of the Nitziv is well known. The last Tshuva that I'll mention today is a very short Tshuva in the second Chalak about a din if a father tells his son that he does not want to marry a certain girl, the Shulchan Aruch Paskin based on a Marik, that the son does not have to listen to the father. But the Nesiv adds, that's in the case where the wife in question did not cause shame and embarrassment to the father. In such a case, it would be forbidden to marry her. And he quotes the, discusses the Marik, who says, basically, the definition of Kibbut Av is only relegated to personal service that a person does for his father. Things that really have nothing to do with his father, there's no din of Kibbut Av. And the, the Gra, quoting the Ramban, the Rajba, says that the Iker of Kibbut Av is only if the father actually benefits from, from it. So, in such a case, if the father would have benefit from the fact that this, the son marries this particular girl, or girl that he wishes him to marry, then you might have to listen to him. But he said, and, and certainly you're not allowed to marry a girl who would cause disgrace to your father. But, if, and a father could not even say, okay, I'm willing. If it objectively creates a disgrace to the father, that would be a, a problem of Morav. And there's no din of mechila. Father cannot waive his rights in the, under the din of mora. Another explanation that he gave is there is a mitzvah to marry the woman that you prefer. If your father would tell you not to marry her, <coughs> it's a type of an avera. <coughs> Excuse me. In which case, you certainly not would have to listen to your father. As I said before, that is only a case of kibbutz. If the father has no right to tell his son whom to marry or to tell him not to marry someone else, unless it's a din of bizayon, a son who causes disgrace to his father is included not just in a mitzvah say, but we have over a makla of a ve'imel. It's a special curse to someone who somehow treats the honor of his father lightly, makle, from the word kal, makle aviv imo. so therefore in such a case you would not be allowed to marry the, this particular woman.